Pot here. I'm so excited to bring you this interview today with my good friend, Dr. Paul Lawrence. Paul is a very experienced expat leader, having worked in three different continents with British Petroleum. He is also a very experienced change facilitator, a writer, a researcher, an academic, a teacher, and above all, an astute observer of all things leadership. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss what is it like to get feedback as a leader in Spain, what's the difference between being agenda-full and agenda-less, and why dialogue is the only truly effective way to lead change. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Never leadership isn't about competencies and about whether you can exhibit these 12 competencies. Leadership is about practical judgment. The world is far too complex to, to, to say to a leader, hey, you, you want to navigate the complexity? Here's the 12 competencies. It doesn't work like that. And Stacey talks about practical judgment. And that's what I was hearing in all these folks. And I had all these wonderful stories. And, and, and what I, my job was to extract from all these stories the essence, the essence of how these folks were going about leading change. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome to our conversation, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Great to have you here. Can I start our conversation today with your own career? So given you left London where you did your PhD, you joined BP, Mm. and with them you worked across different countries, including Spain, including Portugal, including Japan, including Australia. Mm. From a leadership perspective, that's multiple countries in three different continents. Looking back now, what were some of the lessons you learned around transitioning as a leader across different environments? Mm. Um. Yeah, I think I think for me, it become it's it was a piece around just recognizing who I was as a person, recognizing in going into some very different cultures because the Spanish culture is very different to the UK culture and the Japanese culture is very different. Becoming increasingly aware of who I am as a person and 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 how I came to be who I came to be and recognizing the role of all the other people. Uh, in my childhood and beyond who 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 kind of co-created who I am and and that was in a particular culture um and just being constantly curious uh as to and and just recognizing that it, yeah everywhere's different I've heard you use the word before uh tune in so tune into mm. both yourself in terms of what you think understand believe maybe make sense of the world and then also tune into the environment around you. Mm-hmm. Do you have any moment in time when you, in, again, with hindsight, you started recognizing that you were tuning in at different levels and recognizing things differently? Um, yeah, lo- lots of things. I remember the first meeting I have ever had in Spain. Uh, I, I was with a colleague from the UK, and we're used to the, U, the British way of doing things, which is somewhat ordered and structured. And after five minutes, everybody in the room was shouting at each other. Uh, it's just a completely different way of doing things and it just would never happen in England and so we're looking at each other going you know where are we what's going on here um, Japan um, was uh, again I remember when we first arrived in Japan as we were walking down the street with my wife and and if I'm really honest about it I, I, I was looking at all these people and they all kind of looked the same and that they looked different to me physically um, 
And it was a real epiphany when about six months later we happened to be walking down the same street and I just realised I was, I was seeing people. <laughs> so <laughs> the first time you went there, you, you were noticing the differences. Mm. The second time you... you differences you, from me. From yeah. you, of course. Second time you started recognising we're, we're all humans here together. And uh, yeah, the similarities. When people say to me, you know, which countries did you most enjoy being in? I tend to go to Spain and Japan because I had such a wonderful time in both those countries because those the people who I worked with were all beautiful, generous, witty, funny. They had things to say. Da, 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 da. But when you when you first arrive in Spain, it's brash and it's noisy. When you first arrive in Japan, you're all you know you're very aware of all the, the rituals and what have you. And, and and you know in all the cultural space, I think all of that stuff. You know, you get this when you go to Spain, uh, Japan. You get the book telling you how to sort of do this, how to do that, and that's all very well. But uh, at the end of the day, I think when you've been in those places and you're curious, you you, you tune into where we're, where we're similar because we are all very similar to each other. If I remember rightly, you your first expat role uh, was uh, in Australia, and, yes. and then you went from there to Spain. I went to Australia, back to the UK for a year, then Spain, then Portugal, then Japan. Okay, so let's let's go to Spain. So Spain, you were uh, you had a couple hundred people reporting to you. I think yeah. it was one of your first times in a yeah. big division. Yeah. Um, from memory, part of the reason why you got the role was because you could speak some degree of Spanish, although I think it wasn't probably not a lot. Yeah, it wasn't a lot at all. It was, it was uh, some, some people apply, I really applied for it because I really fancied it, but, but my Spanish was, um, I'd been living in Brisbane. As I said, we lived in Australia before we went to the UK, went to Spain, and when I was in um, Brisbane, I did these evening classes in Spanish at the QUT. I used to ride my bike along the, um, we lived in Brisbane City, um, and I'm not good at languages, actually. Um, and so I got my what, certificate two or something, I can't remember what it was called. So I, I, I was sort of, yeah... But what I then I sort of so yes I said I could speak Spanish but I got parachuted into Spain and it was more than two because it was a retail network this was like five hundred people and the only other person in that whole net, none of my direct reports could speak English the only person who could was this lovely lady who worked on the forecourt on a service station in Malaga nobody else could <laughs> um, and so yeah so I had to. Um, yeah, so you were actually the foreigner in charge and you were, you were thrown in the deep end. When you look back now, what, what were some of the mistakes or learnings you've had from that experience? Well, Spain, I hadn't really... I'd sort of... I'd done a kind of really interesting sort of leadership role when I was in Australia first time around because I was, I was out there doing sort of territory management and, and there was a leadership aspect to that. But it was the first time I'd had direct reports and certainly that size. Um... And, yeah, I guess I had a model of leadership which said, you know, leaders ultimately are supposed to know what they're doing and they're supposed to know the answers and the reason why have they shipped an expat in here because supposedly because he knows what he's doing. Blah, blah, blah. So my style was, was I, looking back, I'd say it was pretty directive. Um, hopefully sort of nudging towards authoritative, but it was, it was, yeah, I had a leader as expert model in my head. And Spain is one of the one of the beautiful countries where um, feedback is offered very mm. very overtly and very often, whether you want it or not. Mm. I'm imagining as, as the expat leader, you're on the, the receiving end of that on occasions. Well, I was very lucky because um, you know what, what we, uh, we're going to talk about. I think the leading change stuff and um, the leading change was where I was research. You know, I spoke to 50 leaders around the world, what have you. And what seemed to distinguish those leaders from others was they had they had built in feedback loops into their daily lives so a lot of those ceos and so on have seven or eight people all around the organization they're getting the feedback all the time and you contrast that i don't know about your experience but my experience of you know working lots of people just 
don't get feedback. I got lots of feedback and it was very direct feedback like you know why are you being such a prick in and i you know i know, that, I know that word in yeah. spanish now and so <laughs> it was you know what are you you know why are you doing this why are you doing that and and it was it was a beautiful i was there for like well, two and a half years and it was a complete learning experience thanks to the people that i was working with when do you think you started recognizing how to listen to the feedback to understand it and then you know do something with it as opposed to mm. you know react defensively to it which is imagining i'm imagining it's where you started well, i th- well i still do res- respond defensively to feedback uh, and, and i think i think most people do because um I, I have a story i i have a story about who i am you know if you ask me who i am i'll tell you who i am and it's a story that i'm making up and it's a story that other people have contributed to including yourself so i have this story and i, I and I hold this story. It's it's the way that I make meaning of everything that goes on. So if you give me feedback, and 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 if the feedback doesn't really, um, what's the word? If the feedback isn't consistent with that story I'm telling myself, then I, then that's yeah. I, I need to process that. I need to decide for myself what to take from that because any feedback you give me is not objective feedback. I mean, every, every this is the thing. Different people will give you feedback. One person's blunt and transparent and, and refreshing and direct is another person's rude and abrasive. So I've got to really process it and decide for myself, you know, what sense to make of it. And, 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 and that, there's a defensive piece around that in that I don't just go, oh, yes, thank you for the feedback. I need to process it, and then I need to decide what sense to make of it and what to do about it. Um, so I think that's always going on. But I think, uh, you know, over time, this is, again, what I think we're going to come to in terms of the systems piece. If I, if I see feedback as a non it's not an objective process. Online 360s are not objective. It's about people sharing with me how they experience me. And if I can kind of just relate to that at a kind of meta level and go, well, this is how so-and-so relate. Well, I get that, right? Because I know that if um, uh, if I... I know I re- sometimes just get on a doing drive and I just want to get stuff done. And if I get sucked into a meeting where we're going to spend 60 minutes talking about systems, then I'm going to get cranky. They're telling me they found me cranky. Well, of course they did, because that's what's going on here. It doesn't mean I am, in inverted commas, cranky. It means... That's the behaviour they saw. That's how they responded to it. And by the way, that other person in the meeting thought I was being, really doing a great job in making sure that we just cut through stuff. You know, I'm, I'm seeing it from a lens that says this isn't about me. It just isn't. Feedback isn't about you. Feedback is about you. In the, in, it's about the relationships between you and other people. I think it's really insightful what you said, Paul, because given the work that you and I do, but also in terms of the role of leaders and leading teams and, and, and developing uh, teams towards whatever output they're looking to develop mm. towards, a feedback loop of, of, of many kinds is very, very helpful. Yes, we know that, to your point, people uh, automatically don't receive feedback necessarily always brilliantly. Mm. We aren't always skilled at giving it. And mm. the third point you just put in there is um, we're giving feedback through our own bias of the world. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, by nature, it, it can be pure. It's a mm. perspective. Mm. Yet, without feedback, stuff doesn't evolve or change. Or at least it doesn't yeah. evolve or change in a direction yeah. that's purposeful. 
This is. I had this conversation with someone very recently. It was a coaching conversation, and she she brought to the coaching conversation. I just don't like feedback. Um, and what 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 shifted in our conversations was she was you know I'm not going to go through the whole process. It was a coaching. It wasn't me lecturing. It was a coaching thing. But what 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 came out of that was she shifted from a perspective of these people are telling me what I'm like and this is terrible to no. What I'm hearing here is how other people are experiencing our relationships. That's what it is. It's it's not objective. It's 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 beautiful because the the feedback then helps me understand, um, which again is really important from a systemic perspective. The the inf- the influence and the impact I'm having on people at any given point in time in any different context, and that's why you need to ask the feedback. This notion of doing an online three hundred and sixty once a year, what's that? How's that going to help? That's a very blunt. You know, you look at your your thing. This is your feedback. That in itself is an amalgamation of all sorts of different people telling you about how they experience you in different scenarios, and you get it once a year, as opposed to a regular conversation. Yeah, all the time. Let's move to your first book, mm. uh, Leading Change. I remember when I first read it, I was intrigued uh, by a, a number of things, but particularly by your premise. There's multiple, multiple, mm. probably warehouses on Amazon full of books about change. Mm. They always have the author's perspective mm. of change, yet you went about it differently. You interviewed mm. uh, 50 leaders around the world, including 25 CEOs, who had successfully led change Mm. in terms of identifiable success and Mm. you interviewed them for their perspectives on what they had done Mm. talk us through that process and talk us through some of the outcomes that you learned from that process yeah so the the premise was i I wanted to know i there's a lot of books that say you know the 10 pitfalls of doing change or the 10 ways not to do change and i wanted to know well how should we do change and i wanted to hear it from the leaders themselves books are very quick and easy to write these days so there's a there's a hundred different versions of it so who says so i wanted to know from and there's a whole i'm not going to go into the whole question of how to decide whether someone's a successful leader or what's a successful change process there's a whole other conversation but i wanted to hear you know from these leaders what um, uh, their experience here and um, what uh, finding number one no change models mentioned these people were not going about doing change according to a, a change model they, they actually it was quite intuitive and based on their own experience which i think is um so for all the writers who spend hours and years writing books and change the, the at least the sample you have read you have um spoken to didn't reference those models not directly that doesn't mean they haven't read them it doesn't yeah. mean they weren't influenced by them but they, they 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 weren't kind of they weren't what they weren't doing was managing re- reading a book in one hand while they went about reading and that doesn't mean those books aren't useful it doesn't mean they hadn't read them but but what 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 i heard was people actually going about doing this based on their own intuition based on their experience and that takes me to this whole definition of leadership the ralph stacy stuff that says leadership isn't about competencies and about whether you can exhibit these 12 competencies leadership is about practical judgment the world is far too complex to, to, to say to a leader hey you, you want to navigate their complexity here's the 12 competencies it doesn't work like that and stacy talks about practical judgment and that's what i was hearing in all these folks and i had all these wonderful stories and and, and what i my job was to extract from all these stories the essence the essence of how these folks were going about leading change or at least Let's not pretend I was a neutral observer. What I what I interpreted the essence to be, and what was that? Really, it was three things. Uh, it was number one, their the way that they chose to listen to people. Number two, their capacity to say what needed to be said. 
And if you take the listening and the voicing, we can call that dialogue. And third, it was their uh, capacity to kind of view the organisation, let's use the word system, to view the system and, and be, be really cognisant of who they needed to be in dialogue with okay. and who else needed to be in dialogue with each other. So, okay, so let, let's go back to our three points. So you said listening. Now, mm. there's an old phrase, you've got two ears and one mouth, so let's use yeah. that order. I think you're suggesting yeah. something much deeper than that. Can you talk to me about these leaders and, and what they meant by listening mm. and, and why that was useful? Well, yeah, again, the listening conversation, I think, is somewhat limited in that we, we talk about needing to listen harder or, or and I'm not still not really sure active listening is, but the, the premise seems to be we need to listen harder. The, the premise here is there are different ways of listening and which way are you choosing to listen. And the way most of us tend to listen, certainly in an organisational context where we're under time pressure, is we're listening for what's being said and we're straight away atta- very quickly attaching our own meaning to that. And we're doing that to an ex- pretty much unconsciously without necessarily recognising it. And I can listen. You, you tell me I'm not listening when I'm doing that. I'm going to get cross with you because I can repeat back every word you just said to me. I'm listening hard as. I'm listening actively, right? But this is about listening beyond the, the content to, you know, what is this person really trying to say? Because, you know, a lot of the time, especially when you're talking about complex issues uh, and I'm, I'm t- giving you my view, my, my view is kind of forming while I speak. So, so by listening to what someone's trying to say, you can actually help them express what it is they're trying to say. And then there's another form of listening, which is, well, okay, I understand what you're trying to say. Why are you trying to say it? Who is this person? So there's lots of different ways of listening. And as I said, I think what most of us do when we go out there and we listen, we're listening for what kind of, that's what we want to hear, that's what we don't want to hear. And the, the, the metaphor that came up two or three times, totally un, un, unsolicited, was this concept of agenda-less and agenda-full listening. And so some, some folks said, you know, my leader comes out and talks to me, but pff, I, I wish they didn't because they come out here like, as if they really want to hear what's... But th- I know what they want me to say. They've, they've, they've come out with an agenda. Wouldn't it be lovely if they just came out without an agenda and they were really curious about me and my perspective and what's going on here? So it's that agendaless and agenda full. So the leaders... Uh, I love that metaphor, by the way. I'm, I think I might rob that. Beautiful. Mm. Um, so leaders who you interviewed who were relatively successful at leading change and appreciate the vision mm. of success is not in, in, yeah. in this conversation. Mm. They were listening um, with a degree of agenda less. They were listening yeah. to understand, they were listening yeah. with curiosity yeah. as opposed to listening with an agenda and therefore I look like I'm listening to you but in fact I'm getting ready to answer, I'm getting ready for a pause to put in my point of view. I am listening to you. I am listening to the words that you're saying, and while I'm hearing the words, I'm deciding what I'm going to say next. Got but it. don't tell me I'm not listening, because yeah. I'm listening to every word. Yeah. But I'm listening in a different way. Yeah. Another way of putting it is I'm listening without fear. Agenda-less um, is listening without fear. Yeah, because I've, I've shared this concept with some leaders, and, and, and some leaders have said to me, um, yeah, but I, can't, I don't want to engage in that kind of conversation, because if they share all these perspectives with me, then I'll have to do something about it. Well, you don't have to do anything about it. You, this is, this is, you know, dialogue is not just about listening. Dialogue is about listening and dialogue is about saying what needs to be said. If people are presenting views with you that you're really open to and you're curious about and, and when they've explained it to you, 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 you're going, I still don't get that. that. That still doesn't resonate with me. That's fine. So I, I, I think there are leaders out there who they don't want to open the door that wide because they're afraid of what will come through the door and what they'll have to deal with, especially if they're conflict avoidant. 
But what, but what you're saying is the leaders who were successful in change were open to the conversation, were open to being curious, and then what emerged, emerged, and they, they dealt with that. And they're completely relaxed about what someone's going to say. Think about just giving someone feedback. Think about just preparing giving someone feedback, feedback that you don't think they're going to take very well. A lot of people will script that. And one of the things they're trying to do is they're just trying to direct the conversation because they don't want to get into that person's perspective because they don't agree with it and they don't want to have that conversation where they disagree with it. This is what I'm talking about is fearless listening. I don't yeah. mind what you say. And I, in fact, I want you to say whatever it is you've got to say because it's going to help me understand you and, and, and it's going to help me understand this part of the organisation. The second part of what you said was saying what had to be said. Yep. Now, given that these are leaders and some in, in half of your interviews were, were CEOs, they, mm. they have an opinion, they have a yep. mandate, they have stuff to do. In fact, yep. they, they actually do have an agenda. Yeah. What does saying what had to be said mean? It means um, at any point in time, I'm thinking something. And here's the thing. If you don't share it, that doesn't get appreciated. We know this, right? If we're, we're having a conversation with someone and we sense that there's something they're holding on to and they're not sharing it with me, I don't generally appreciate that. And in fact, it doesn't help build trust. I want to know what it is you've got to say. One of the biggest things I hear, but most unhappiest people in organisations tend to be when there's a restructure going on and senior leaders aren't telling us what's going on. And then you talk to the senior leaders and they say, well, we don't know what's going on. We've got to wait until we've got something to say. Through this lens, uh-uh. they want to know what you're thinking, Okay, so it's that saying that thing that needs to be said. It's intuitive, but the the word I'd add, and it's a really important word, is respectful. You want it to be said respectfully. Respectfully. So you're saying what I need to say. I'm saying, here's here's I'm the CEO. Okay, here's the organisation. Here's what I'm noticing. Here's what I'm observing. Here's what I'm being told. Here's what I'm. Here's the sense that I'm making of that. And on that basis, here's what I think we're going to be doing next. But I'm leaving space for other people to have a different view. And I have the courage to elicit that view. And I have the courage to go, yeah, I really appreciate that. Actually, this is what we're going to do next. Does that and make com- sense? And the combination of both of those is, is dialogue. Hmm. Just for those of us who, who have an idea that dialogue might be, I've got my point of view, you've got hmm. yours, we'll just say it into hmm. each other. Can you just explain the difference between, say, a discussion or a debate and, yes. and dialogue and, and what, what they mean? Yeah, so that... Here, thank you. So... Um, uh, Bill Isaacs, David Baum and so on have distinguished this is all you know, simplifying things but they've distinguished different types of conversation and to keep this simple here's three types of conversation debate, we're familiar with debate it's where I've got my view, you've got your view and we're creating a forum where we just want to get, get all those views out there Prime Minister's Question Time is a great example of that um, it's basically the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition just shouting at each other basically and getting it all out there what's the purpose of that? I guess just to surface the views um, it, it off, if it's used purposefully and well debate is great, that's, that's its function then you've got skilled conversation and people get skilled conversation mixed up with dialogue mm-hmm. uh, skilled conversation is where I actually have some parameters here some non-negotiables. So do you. So in this conversation, let's work out what each other's non-negotiables are and let's find a solution that meets both of our non-negotiables. It's, it's, it's kind of like a negotiation. Um, dialogue is different because I'm doing my best to come to that conversation without, um, without any non-negotiables. I'm coming into this conversation and Isaac's used this lovely language, I'm suspending my noble certainties. My noble certainty is the thing that I'm sure is right. And I'm recognising it and I'm suspending it. I'm not getting rid of it. 
but I'm recognizing, for example, and we're going to have a conversation about how to respond to COVID. And I have a belief that says everybody is accountable. So whatever we do here, it, we need to be making sure people understand they've got to wear masks and they've got to do this and got to do that. I, I insist that that's what we, comes up in our solution. So I approach the dialogue by going, I know this thing about myself, right? I know I believe in personal accountability. And I'm okay with that, but I'm recognising it. That's my noble certainty. I'm just going to suspend that as I really seek to understand the other person's perspective. And the, the purpose of dialogue is then you're able to work beyond all of the non-negotiables that people... T- and create something may- that may be completely new and creative. That's why, di- that's why I often talk about dialogue in relation to innovation. I think if you want to have innovation and create something completely new... You have to, you know, you have to create that space in which there are those absence of non-negotiables. Well, I think, I think what you're laying out for us beautifully here is, in any kind of expansive type conversation, be it innovation related, be it generative, be it um, complex problem solving, mm. where you need to get wider perspectives, dialogue is the most effective way of the conversation approach or mindset relative to debate or relative mm. to whatever else. Great, but dialogue's not easy. Well, dialogue is impossible, is my belief. Um, so David Bohm said, you know, this, this idea around dialogue is lovely, but don't try and do it in organisations because it won't work. Um, so there's two reasons. It's, it's one reason it's impossible and one reason why it's just very, very difficult. The reason it's impossible is if I'm going to go into a conversation and I'm going to suspend all of these things that I hold dear, including my values and my core beliefs, I need to know what they are. And there may be some people in the world who think they're completely 100% self-aware, but, but, but you know, a lot of folks, particularly if you read any of the stuff around self-differentiation, self-actualization, would say that's just an ongoing journey. So for that reason, I think dialogue is, is pure dialogue is impossible, but it doesn't matter. This is about an aspiration to create as, 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 as creative a space as possible. The other reason is it's certainly in organisations, and this is, the, this is the thing that people always pick on. They say... I'm ready to have a dialogue, but how do I make the other person engage in dialogue? Because doesn't it take two? Of course, it does take two. And so uh, what, what happens in, in um, organisations is people don't turn up without an agenda. They don't turn up agenda-less. There are all sorts of power dynamics that are at play in an organisation, and we, we recognise the positional power one very easily. So if the boss walks in the room, we're trying to have dialogue, and the boss says, okay, uh, thank you, uh, 15 minutes in, um, this is what we're going to do. What the boss has just done is taken us out of dialogue and exercised his positional or her positional power. And, and, and of course, there are lots of other sources of power as well, relational, network, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so where you've got those, pa- this is Bohm's point, you've always in an organisation got these power dynamics at play, therefore you can't engage in pure dialogue. And I kind of agree with that. I mean, when we wrote the dialogue book, seven of us sat together. To, the intention was to engage in dialogue for two and a half days and hoping the book would emerge. Um, we noticed in ourselves we couldn't hold that pure dialogue space amongst seven of us for very long. It was almost as if done that we were in, we were out, we were in, we were out, we were in, we were out. You know, it would just take one person to just tune out because it was tiring or they were distracted and it impacted on the, on the whole thing. So it's really interesting. So the book that Paul's referring to is called The Tower of Dialogue. It was the second book that you've uh, written, or co-written in this case. Mm. Uh, and um, it's a really beautiful, 
easy access to the concept of dialogue. And it's a short book. It's an easy to read book. It's set up with characters yeah. and it's like story and fables. But it it really illustri- illustrates, as you quite rightly said, the the power and benefit of it. But also, it takes access to it, and and, and it takes practice, and you drop in and out of it. I'm, mm. I'm interested in in our current times you were recording this in july 2020 mm. and where the whole world is is amidst the, the, the pandemic still how do leaders who don't have the answers because none of us have the answers right now but leaders still have to lead mm. and the organizations are looking for leadership mm. and i think human beings generally understand this is really strange but i'm still looking to my leader how does the leader manage their own emotions their own inner dialogue inner mm. voice, whatever, mm. to be able to communicate effectively. Yeah, and, and and I think that's a lovely point because I love all this stuff, as you know. I love the stuff around inner voices and, and multiplicity and the idea that we have different selves. The, um, the, the, the piece I would say there is, is I, I like the inner voices metaphor, and I think it's real. Here's two ways of looking at inner voices. So there's a very popular book, sold a lot of copies, called Tame Your Inner Gremlin, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And got a colourful colour on it. Sorry? Got a colourful colour on it. Yeah. It's a while ago since I've read it, but the, the basic premise seems to be how do you get rid of this gremlin? Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that idea because um, there's a lot of lovely stuff that's come out of um, the Adelaide Centre, which is a sort of counselling therapy space, which has manifested itself. I know I came across this inner critic stuff about 10 years ago. And the inner critic stuff says, the inner critic is kind of comparable to your gremlin, I suppose. It's the voice that's saying, well, you can't do that, or you're going to stuff that up, or that was terrible. And it's not helpful a lot of the time, right? But the premise is actually your inner critic is there. It appeared in your life at some point, and it appeared because you needed it. It's there to help. Unfortunately, it's kind of showing up at times when it's not helpful. But it's, it's intended to help. So I'm going to do a presentation in front of 200 people and the, in, the, the, the inner critic is really nervous that you're going to make a fool of yourself. So it's saying, Rem- remember when you stuffed that up? Remember when you stuffed that up? Don't do that again. And, and, and look at those people in the audience. They're not even smiling at you. You need to do something to get them to... So it's, it's on your side, but it's not helping you in that moment and so if you look at the world through this idea of multiplicity and there's some lovely stuff written around this it says authenticity isn't about being true to your single self because you don't have a single self authenticity is about two things the extent to which all your multiple selves know each other they know each other and they appreciate each other and they kind of work out who is the best self to show up at the best context. So I'm going on to do a presentation. This is if I'm authentic according to this definition, right? Inner critic says, hey, guys, watch out. And the, um, you know, call it what you, because we've all got our own inner voices and we give whatever names we like, right? But let's say somebody had an inner voice that was, uh, oh, what was it, the aggressive librarian and... Um, can't remember the name, but he, he wore a sombrero and he was wore budgie smugglers and that was it. And <laughs> he developed and, a whole character around yeah, this. And that self um, said, No, we can do this. We're gonna have fun here, right? Well, I'm just gonna go out there and connect. That's what I I connect with people. So be still in a critic. Let let me go out here now and you just kind of come with us, but just perhaps just take a step back. An inner critic trusts that self enough to let that self do it. So the cells have got to know each other. So, sorry, that, I mean, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent now, but the purpose is, coming back to your question, as a leader, how do I manage my emotions? Get to know them. 
maybe the multiple the multiplicity piece a lot of people find that interesting some people don't but get to know the emotion if if, if you're going to go and if you're going to go and work with your team and you want to help your team come up with a response to covid and your and and if your objective is we need to come out of this aligned then um, you know that some of the emotions you might otherwise take into that conversation are not going to be helpful so you need to know them. You need to know where they're coming from. Again, you could talk about this through a CBT perspective. What are the automatic thoughts and, and do I know where they're coming from and how do I challenge them? But, but uh, what you're laying out here really lovely is the role of emotions. First of all, emotions are powerful. Mm-hmm. They're, they come from a, a deep, deep space. They have often have histories and stories attached to them. Oh, some I we see. know, some we don't know yeah. at all. Either way, they're powerful. Yeah. The notion of telling an emotion just to die away is, is not really helpful, whereas recognising it's there mm. and recognising you just don't have one, you've mm. got multiple, mm. which, as you said, feeds your, your own authenticity anyway. Mm. But the notion of I've got multiple emotions, how do I recognise them? How do I be, um, become uh, aware of them? And how do I be mindful of that in, as I go into the meeting? And that will allow me to potentially yeah. be a, a lot more um, mm. in tune with the conversation because I'm in tune with myself. Mm. Exactly. Great. That's, that's, that's really, really helpful. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. Let's move our conversation on to a very different topic now. Uh, I read an article recently by the consulting firm McKinsey's, who have mm. lots of great articles on, on their resources mm. section. Mm. This particular one was around leadership teams and leadership teams who were leading transformations. And one of their statistics that caught my eye in their article was they said 33%, i.e. a third, mm. of fa- it's exactly 33% mm. of failed transformations were because the leadership team's behaviours did not support the desired changes Mm. and my initial response was what were they thinking Mm -hmm. and then my second response was i wonder what were they thinking (laughs) that Mm. led to those specific behaviors Mm. that led to that that piece you you have an upcoming book uh coming out later this year that talks to different levels of thinking Mm. and the notion of there's different ways of thinking and if you understand that, you can actually understand in the behaviors that follow that because you look at the world through a particular lens or a particular mm. order. Mm. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit. But before we, before we dive into that, what do we actually mean when we talk about systemic thinking? Um, well, I think that was part of the reason for writing the book because if you get five people yeah, working in the coach space or the leadership space, because that, that whole notion of systemic thinking is, is showing up a lot in organisations at the moment. I'm noticing it show up in leadership programmes and just the general narrative. What it's, and it'll mean different things to different people, but, but, but the most common meaning of that, it seems to me, just through my own experiences of people, is it means I stand back and I, I take a big picture perspective, essentially. That's what it seems to mean. Big picture and holistic, yeah. yeah, notion. Okay, but but I think what in in your upcoming book, well, and I've heard you talk about this at various mm. conferences. What you're saying is that's like an, an umbrella statement, and within that, there's a whole range of, of mm. levels of what do I mean by mm. I look at the system, mm. and it's almost it's not mm. quite hierarchical, but each no, each not. one has a. It's almost like say rings of a tree. Each ring in a tree is a ring in a tree, but the more mm. you 
the bigger ones have a bigger part of the tree. They can see more of the tree in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Can you talk us through the five levels of thinking? And given where we are in the world right now, maybe explain each one and then how that relates to a team addressing a situation in COVID or indeed maybe yeah. even a government addressing COVID. Okay. So f- the first one is first order linear. Um, so if you think about COVID, I'm a world leader and I have 10 cases of COVID. And so I stand up to the world media and I say, we've got 10 cases of of the virus right now, but we're relaxed about this because it's just 10. Tomorrow, if we did nothing, tomorrow it might be 20. The next day it might be 30. If we did nothing for two weeks, we'd have 140. So this all feels very manageable. And that's a very linear way of thinking about COVID. If I think about my team... um, Again, I'm thinking about things very much in terms of linear cause and effect. What we do has a very predictable outcome. So we all have our role descriptions and we have our KPIs. And as long as we're clear on what we're all supposed to be doing, then the outcome will be pretty predictable and successful. So it feels kind of um, mechanistic or predictable, uh, maybe even simple in, in some senses. It's certainly mechanistic because this is the this is the metaphor of the organization as a machine. Right. So cause, if you can identify the cause, you can work out the effect mm. and therefore manage it. So yeah. as a leader who looks at the world or looks at the situation or the problem through that way of thinking, mm. they're identifying the system, absolutely, but they're identifying we can manage this and therefore yeah. the decisions and behaviours yeah. will follow that. Okay. And you may find that team doesn't, the, the various leaders in that team, team members, they don't necessarily interact a lot this is, I was coaching a team recently, actually, and, and, and one of the team members said, I don't challenge you, because challenge, challenging people is something that a lot of teams wrestle with. I don't challenge you because it's your domain, it's your expertise, and I don't feel I have the right to challenge you on that. It, it's this notion, yeah, it is simplistic, it, well, simplistic, but it's mechanistic, it's predictable, you're the expert. We don't really need to interact because, you know, it's all fairly straightforward. So then first order nonlinear. Yeah. what's the difference between those two? Well, it's still mechanistic because I'm still, I st- I'm still looking at the organisation as a machine, but I'm recognising that cause and effect is not as linear as, as, as I might otherwise think. So then I'm the world leader who's saying, um, okay, we've got 10 cases. Uh, we need to be worried here, right? Because every person right now is infecting two and a half people. And so, you know, give it a week. We could have 10,000 cases if we do nothing. Um, and I'm recognising that cause and effect is, is can sometimes be a little, you know, it isn't the case that if I get infected, suddenly I come up with all these predictable symptoms. Um, if, there's, if we've got 10 cases, we might have 100 cases. So I'm, I'm noticing still the organisation is a machine, but it's a much more complicated machine. And there's other concepts here like causal loops and what have you. I'm not going to go into that now. But that, and that's how systems thinking was defined by, I'm simplifying, but that's how systems thinking was defined by Senge about 30 years ago. This is what I mean. This whole word, phrase, systems thinking, has lots of different meanings. But in, in, in that level, um, if you want mm. to use the word levels, uh, but that order mm. of nonlinear first order, the leader, or be it politician, be a team leader, is recognising that it's getting... Um, there, there's a, it's, it's not straightforward mm. linear, as you said, it's mm. non-linear, mm. but it's still within the system, it's still mm. within control. Yeah. We are intelligent, we are smart, yeah. we, can, we can grapple with this, yes. we will figure it out. That's right. And so, again, if you look at the, how, how much a team function, if a team was looking through this lens, it would value the intelligence and the smartness. You, you might get 
more collegiate behaviour on that team to leverage, you know, the whoever's perceived to be the clever people to help the other people kind of work out what's going on here. And that leader is probably likely to, if you ask them their values, intelligence is likely to be in there somewhere. And and it's very common, as, as I said to you, I, I know I've told you this before, but I was... I did some work with a very big, massive organisation. It was number five, one of the top five organisations in the world, which was terribly successful, and it wasn't terribly successful. And the CEO of that organisation, when I read their autobiography, talked about um, talked about how he just loved problem solving, and it was it was very it was absolutely the value is around the. He was an incredibly intelligent person, intimidatingly intelligent person, and 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 that was kind of the value of that organisation. But the problem solving notion was um you know i or we can solve this problem we don't need to go externally it's within no. our own control it's yeah. all about your your brain power yeah. so let's jump over to second order thinking yep and this goes beyond our individual capacity or brain power to manage what's in our control mm. talk us to, to that um so again, it's actually still mechanistic, I think. I mean, there's different interpretations on everything I'm saying, so I'm just simplifying. But the, the second-order perspective says, yes, the organisation is a machine, but its functioning is so complicated, we can't hope to really understand what's going on here. So it's almost like a black box theory. It's a machine, but it's like you know the black box record and an aeroplane. It, it's too hard to even work out how this thing works, right? Um, so... But it, it, so, so we need to, the best we're going to be able to do here is to come up with a hypothesis as to how the system is working. And, and we appreciate the subjectivity of our own perspective. That, that's another fundamental aspect of second order thinking. We know that we are not objective creatures, that we are subjective. And so we're only going to come up with a really good hypothesis if we get a number of different people all looking through their own different lenses to come together. And from that, then we'll, we'll get a, a, a pretty good hypothesis that we can go and test by kind of do, learn, do, learn, do. That would be a second-order hypothesis. So with, with COVID again, uh, first thing I'm going to do as the world leader is I'm going to ring up Singapore and, and, and wherever else, mostly in Southeast Asia, I think, and say, you've done this before. What did you do? Help me understand what happened in your country. Help me understand what you did, because I'm really interested to know. Um, I might be, in, even in my own country, I might ring around the other, in Australia, I'll ring around the other states and say, how is this occurring to you? Now that, that's not a first order way of doing things. The first order way of doing things is, this is a, comp- this is a really complicated thing, but I, as my definition of myself as a leader is I need to know the answer. And you look at the behaviour of some world leaders, and some of these are a bit obvious, did they go reaching out to other countries? To, no, they didn't. Shut the doors. They shut the doors and they said, we will work this out with our experts and started pointing the fingers at other, you know, and it got very, you know, finger pointing in. Yeah. That's not a second order perspective. So second order, so there's a few things you said there I think are really important. There's the, the notion of let's create a hypothesis because right now I know that I or my team or my country, we don't know enough. Mm. So we have to mm. bring in other points of view, other expertise, mm. other experiences so we can create mm. the best hypothesis for mm. the moment. Mm. The second thing you said is the notion of experimentation because the hypothesis mm. might keep changing. So mm. in order to try and figure this out, we actually have to experiment and learn from that. Yeah. Now, I would imagine, given... If you're a politician, can I, just, can I just add? Yeah, there's a real there's a real implication for teams here, mm-hmm. which is if that exchange of different perspectives is important, then we as a team 
have to be good at uh, exchanging different perspectives and not all teams are good at that. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, th- I think this is a really probably a, um, one of the learnings that's coming out of this experience around the world right now for mm. teams and for leaders mm. and for politicians as well is is particularly for politicians who have to go on to their daily news every day with a very mm. clear mm. opinion mm. Uh, otherwise at least traditionally wise they they, mm. they were seen as being not not knowing what they were doing mm. yet they're in the world of um, experimentation mm. with the unknown and they have to experiment mm. and therefore they have to learn mm. and you know, Australia has done quite well in COVID but in the early days I remember hearing lots in the media around the politicians don't know what they're doing mm. no one knew what they were doing mm. it wasn't just them mm. i think over time the media has changed mm. and it has become i think maybe uh, far more accepting of we're all learning together but as mm. you said this the sort of second order thinking requires the leader and the team to understand they are subjective to their own mm. opinions and therefore mm. that's not good enough yeah. they have to have a range of opinions and they have yeah. to develop hypotheses and they have to experiment and learn and and this is co-created i mean like like if i'm a ceo of some organizations i don't think this is true of every organization at all but as a ceo if i turn out in front of my board my board says tell me what's going on here and if I go, well, I can give you some perspectives on what's going on, but I, I, I can't tell you exactly what's going on because no one, no one could ever know that, then that might not be accepted by the board. And if it's not accepted by the board, then, then I'm kind of being firmly directed toward a first-order way of thinking. As you said, politicians are not allowed to or haven't really been allowed to get up and say, hey, who knows? The, the, um, you know, because people get really anxious. They want their, their, their politicians to be able to tell them the answer. And one of the things that happened during COVID which really struck me was when, uh, again, I was lucky enough to be privy to a member of the, the, the senior exec team talking to the broader organisation and, and, and she was saying, you know, here's what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. Not saying that this is the right thing to do. I'm just saying, given all the data we've got right now, this seems to us to be the best guess. I just thought, wow, how often do you hear that? You know, the, the senior team talking to the whole organisation saying, we're not really very sure, but this is our best guess. And so one, I thought, wonderful, because that seemed to be, that seemed to me that then they, that they indicated they had access to that second order way of thinking, which is in, in many contexts is going to be useful. But secondly, we've talked about this before, is um, I thought, wow, is something shifting here? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and, and it does seem to me to be shifting in the, in the kind of political landscape more generally where some leaders, and we know who they are, who, who like to go out there and say, this is what's happening, and it gives people assurance. Funnily now, that seems to be actually not giving people assurance at all. That seems to be what's worrying people. And some people are getting very worried by people who are just saying, yeah, this is, what, this is coronavirus, this is what's happening. Because most of us know especially if you go into second wave. We weren't supposed to have a second wave. That's right. Um, yep. Wow, this is, we are heading into an unknown here. Of course, you yep. can't expect anybody to know exactly what... And what in, in, in modern day, um, uh, multimedia and access to media from anywhere in the world, everyone can pick up any newspaper online to find out what's happening anywhere yeah. and be as yeah. equally informed as, any, yeah. as anybody else and, and understand that. So I, as a leader of my team, how comfortable am I showing up in front of my team and my team says, hey, what's going on, boss? And I go... I'm not really very sure what's going on here, but here's what I'm observing and here's what sense I'm making of it. Here's my best guess. Is that okay or not? Yeah. I was, uh, I'm, I'm interested in your comment on you thinking that um, 
in the in the, in the say the very recent weeks. Mm. And again, we're, we're we're both sitting here in Sydney, Australia, so therefore influenced by what's happening mm. in our geography mm. of the world. Mm. But it's not unique to our geography mm. of the world. And noticing that the media, um, who traditionally have taken what politicians say and tear it apart and, and mm. point out what's wrong with it. Mm. Um, like a lot, like many countries, Australia's uh, debt level has risen dramatically. Mm. You, know, we, you know, we were in a potential surplus coming into this year and now we're going to be $180 billion debt mm. um, in a few weeks' time. So extraordinary mm. change. And as the ministers were um, uh, laying out the, the budget changes, mm. um, one of the ministers said to the media, you know, what was the alternative? Mm. And the media room just went quiet. Mm. And it was palpable that everyone in the room, in a live mm. broadcast, recognizing that actually this is, this is dramatically different. Mm. And therefore, you know, the notion of the government moving into debt was actually it's not a choice here. And and I just thought it was really interesting about for the media particularly, which is a representation of all of us, going, you know, what we're we're actually all in something new together for the first time ever. But isn't that yeah? And isn't that sort of uh, yeah, isn't that COVID a sort of lovely example of that narrative of us uh, you know over time just appreciating the complexity of something that looks quite simple? Because I think when COVID started, the, the task was simple. How do you how do you stop it? Now I think we're all in a place that says, this isn't as simple as that. You've yep. got the virus and you've got the impact on the economy and you can't look at one divorced of the other. Might sound a bit inhumane, but but there's this massive complex thing. And in the media room, I think we've all gone a bit quiet because it's. I think we're all just a bit stumped. Yeah. So level three, second order thinking, level four, complexity. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So the, the first three ways of thinking are quite mechanistic because they're saying, you know, put crudely, the, the, the world operates like a, like a really, an engine, either a simple engine or an engine that's too difficult to understand, but it's still an engine. Well, complexity theory says that's not actually how change happens. What happens with change is people, they make meaning of stuff. So the, the example I tend to use because it was real and it's just a, a, a good one, I think, is when I was doing a coaching skills program at this organisation and, and at the lunch break, we were all out there in the sort of kitchen, da-da-da-da-da. and um, and someone said, because this is what they're all talking about, an email had come out that morning and, and it had said um, something along the lines of, You're, I know we said that everyone would be getting a 15% pay rise, it's now going to be 12%. Oops. Yeah, but it's not a big number, right? I'm going 15, 12, but then that's just me. So 15, 12. So now over here... Um, as you point to your right. As I point to my right, there's a group going, I'm seriously pissed off about this. You know, it's like, this is a matter of principle. They said 15% no matter what. If you say that, you have to stick to it. If, you, if that wasn't the case, then don't say it. So this is a matter of principle. There's a group over here that are going pointing to the left there's a group over here that are going this is so cool because we're this organization is not commercial enough this 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 whole thing about we can't afford to pay 15 we're going to pay 12 that's the lesson we just need to everybody needs to understand that over there pointing forward there's another group that goes 12 percent, 15 percent who cares that's 500 bucks i mean i'm not going to get worried about that so you had all these you, this is different another example of yeah. different populations and they're talking to each other, and out of that kind of collective process comes different meanings. And then, and, and, and then what happens when all of those views come together? Who knows? It's going to be 
somewhat mysterious. And if I'm only looking at what's happening at the high level and I see this mysterious random thing, I go, that's really random. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. The only way I get, but it's not random. Mm -hmm. It's actually, but to understand it, I've got to go and understand what's happening at the local level. So change emerges from these conversations that are happening in the in out there all over the all over the organization and then what emerges as an overall action is is can be somewhat mysterious now if i'm if i'm looking at life through a first order lens or even a second order lens as a member of the senior exec team i'm going that makes no sense what just happened does obviously why didn't they just take the message and logical rational do it well they're resistant to change you know you hear that phrase a lot right oh they're a bit stupid and and then you say to people well that's not how change works here has here's how change works you do not get to control outcomes that is the scary bit you do not get to control outcomes and then people say well what's my job as a leader i just kind of it's it's all it all just happens anyway no what because the way change works is it's an emergence of all of those conversations that are happening all over the organization you can influence those conversations you have to be in conversation you have to get in conversation and that again there's the control bit the other bit that this really challenges is the leader who says i only talk to my direct reports because if i go and talk to the people below then i'm challenging their authority no and I remember this is what one of the leaders said in the leading change thing. He said, no, 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 no. I go and talk to people all over the organisation, but I'm just careful about what I talk about. I don't yeah. do anything to challenge their authority, but I go and listen and speak. Listen, and plant speak. seeds and listen. Yeah. Mm. yeah, great. Let's move on to metasystemic thinking, the fifth order here. Yeah. This, this is a quite a different view of the world compared yeah, yeah. to the first four. Yeah, and this says, well, by the way, there is no such thing as a system. The, the organisations are not systems and there is no such thing as a team and actually there's no such thing as an organization these are all just mental constructs that's kind of scary yeah I mean, it certainly is and this is where i you know and you say i've sort of had these conversations at conferences and so on and this is the one which tends to elicit the most resistance and people say what do you mean there's no such thing as organizations yes there is um well of course there is but it's just a metaphor there's no such thing as a team right a team is this construct that we create for ourselves so i've got eight direct reports that's what i inherited we're a team now that that's a very nice idea very useful to an extent can be useful can be useful in all sorts of ways it it can remind us to get to know each other better i mean it can remind us that we actually need to communicate about this thing that we're all supposedly trying to work toward it's a useful thing right but sometimes it can be not very useful um here's when it's one of the re- one example of where it's not very useful is hey uh, you want me to coach your team but you know you, you you're going to make two people and you and i know this but you, we know two people are going to be made redundant next month you're going to have to replace them da, da, da. so let's leave it six months till this team gets stable i don't know if that's very useful the and the other way it's not useful is i feel all eight of us have to be in every conversation how often do you hear people complaining about meetings and how boring meetings are? This says, no, from a, from, a, from a meta perspective, you need the people in the room to talk about what the, you, you need, the, the people you, that should be in the room are the people that need to be talking about whatever it is you're talking about. And sometimes that might be those three people in the team and sometimes not. If you, if you look at it from a systemic perspective, people will say, you can't, you can't have three people talk. You have to have everybody talking about it. From a meta perspective, it says, no, right now, that's the team. It's Tuesday, it's nine o'clock. Those are the three people we need. That's inverted commas, the team, because they're the people that need to be talking about this thing. At five o'clock, we've got this other conversation. 
We need seven. Tomorrow at six o'clock, we've got this other conversation. We need three people from the team in inverted commas, and then we need all these, these people who are outside the team. So notice the, the, the notion of the team can also limit our thinking sometimes. Well, what I love about this notion, and I must say it took me a while to get my, my own head around it, but what I love about it is specifically for leadership teams, mm. say a CEO-led leadership team or a, a regional, say, you know, Southeast Asia or a Europe-type leadership team. Yeah. Um, and if you're looking at that through first-order lens, you could easily have 12 or 14 people who are all direct reports of that leader who mm. always have to be on the team in every single conversation. Mm. If you look at the metasystemic thinking, the notion of team, well, purely doesn't exist, but let's say it's fluid. <laughs> but it, yeah. it, It's a metaphor yeah. that we're holding, which is, this is why we call, we don't call this anti-systemic. We call this metasystemic because what it's saying is we're, we're, we're just seeing the system and the team and organisation idea for what it is, a u- really useful, useful metaphor, metaphor yeah. sometimes. But for that leader, they can easily work with, in order for to help this decision to be made, these core people are the perfect people. Mm. They are a mm. subset of what we call the team. Yeah. There's another subset of what we call the team who are best suited for these conversations. We yeah. want the whole group of what we call the team in yeah. for these kind of conversations. Mm. Mm. And that allows, that allows the leader, as long as everyone else in the team understands mm. that, and there's a bit of work to be done there, mm. but that, that gives the leader a lot more scope to be flexible and agile with yeah. how they bring that group of people together. It does. And the metasystemic perspective and the complexity perspective are similar in many ways because they're, they're fun fundamental idea of how change happens is the same all we're doing here is we're saying but just be careful of the complexity perspective because you're still talking about the organizations as a system sometimes that's not going to be helpful otherwise it's quite a similar way of looking at things and so yes that's the leader's job but you know of course when as soon as i listen to you saying that i'm just imagining i'm on your team going what are you talking about that's right. There's an impact. You're, you're having yeah. a team meeting without me present. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to be able to manage this as a leader, I'm going to have to be very good at um, managing those relationships and I'm going to have to think a certain way. It's not as easy as it sounds. Absolutely not. Mm. None of this is as easy as it sounds, of course. Mm. We're, we're, we are. We started by saying individuals are complex, teams are complex, and we're in complex times. I want to bring this conversation um, towards a close pretty soon, if I mm. could. And I've got three questions to finish off with, and I'm bringing right back to you uh, in, in terms of where we started today. Mm. Uh, I, I mentioned up front that you're a prolific writer. Um, I didn't actually uh, explain you write in many genres. Uh, leadership and teams is one genre, coaching, supervision of coaches is another genre, historical fiction is a third mm. genre. What does that do for you, writing historical fiction? So I, I wrote a, tr- a trilogy of book murder mysteries set in 17th century London, and they're very gory, and, and they're just... I was going to say they're great, they were great fun to write. They were great fun to write, but uh, I'm not sure that... Um, there isn't a bit of me showing up there that, that, that perhaps... Um, um, As the murderer or the murdered? <laughs> no, it was a sort of slightly confused figure in the middle of it all, but um, and the sort of general goriness of it. But it, it's it's a very self-indulgent space. It's a self-indulgent space. When you're writing all this fiction stuff, if you, if you believe in that kind of systemic perspective, you know that you're just kind of... What you're saying and writing is just kind of... It's, just, it's almost like a, just an escape valve for, for a very collective conversation. Writing fiction, you can just go and do that by yourself you don't have to touch base with anybody else you can just do it by yourself and it's very self-indulgent and you can go where you like and yeah it's very um boundaryless brilliant i know you're also a music fan yeah and in bracket today or any day bracket what's your favorite song today uh, a couple of songs 
and it, so this is all connected. It's also very systemic. So uh, you and I, I think you did as well. We were, we had tickets to go and see a band called the Fat White Family before they got postponed because of did. coronavirus. Yeah, and I hadn't really sort of had a good look at them but, but I spent a load of time because because we don't get to go to bands now I, uh, one of the things I did during coronavirus was just saying, I'm going to find a new band every week that I like enough to go and buy their stuff so I really got into the Fat White family and then there's another band so this is another story so a lady called Maxine Peake who was in a film called Funny Girl and and um, she one day this, this appeals to me because of the sort of 17th century stuff because I'd done a lot of reading into witchcraft and she done a lot of reading into local witchcraft and was really appalled by it because what she found was that actually all these women were were tortured and executed on what premise you know basically it was a way for males to go and torture and kill all, all the women they didn't really like very much right in their community efficient awfully. yeah very efficient not very nice so she was um she was looking for to do a sort of musical thing around it and and she found these two musos on Facebook and that they formed a band called the Eccentronic Research Council and they did an album called the 1612 Underture, which is hard to find. But the, the song Another Witch is Dead um, <laughs> is, is on you, uh, YouTube. And right. it, it's brilliant. And then the other song that I really like because, you know, you, you kind of invited me to be part of your little music group during COVID where you listen to each other's music. And, and one of the things I found was the rest of the group didn't seem to be terribly fond of the Fat White family. And there's this particular song called called Touch the Leather, which, um, and I think it's more of the video than the music. And, and, and that was funny. So, so then, then, but they're connected, right? Because you have Fat White Family and you have Eccentronic Research Council. Right. And then they, they formed a joint venture called The Moon Landings. And The Moon Landings did this album. They've got a fictional lead singer called Johnny Rocket. And the Eccentronic Research Council did another album, which was a kind of, uh, all, all through the lens of this girl who was, believe she was the daughter of Margaret Thatcher and her imaginary love affair with Johnny Rocket. So all these three bands are connected and all the songs are connected. Wow. Most people, when I ask that question to, they give me, you know, like, what a beautiful day by you too. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul gives us yeah. this huge, extraordinary insight into his working mind and to potential music around the world. I'm going to see if I can find a link to another which is dead and put it to the show notes. It's there on YouTube. Last question, Paul, which is the same question I have for everybody because it's one of my um, favourite go-tos for my own learning. Mm. We've learned today um, a whole lot about what you know, and I know it's not anywhere near all the stuff that you do know, but we've had a lot of insights into what, you, what you've learned over your career path. Given all of that, what would you now say to the, let's say, the 35-year-old version of yourself? Mm. You know, given all the wisdom you've accumulated or insights over the years, what would you tell that person? Yeah, I, I, and... Uh, to me, uh, my head goes, it's really not about skills and knowledge and, and wisdom as such, I think. And it's a theme that we've kind of talked about, I think, the, you know, when we talked about the emotions piece. And, and I, think it, I think it relates, I'm not quite sure how, but it relates to the systems thinking too. That, that leadership, and we talked about it with the dialogue piece, that the, our, our capacity to be super effective as a leader relates to uh, the extent to which we're self-aware, that we really understand ourselves. So I think if I was given access, and I said, well, actually, I... I perfectly happy with the way my life turned out but a bit but um you know i don't know what the impact of this would be but it would be you know i'd love to sit down with a 35 year old self and just in in, in a short period as i could help that self just to become more more aware of himself this is who you are mm. Mm. 
Beautiful. Well, Paul Lawrence, um, I am delighted that you are who you are and delighted that you've shared with us all of your insights. Uh, well, actually, not all of your insights, lots of your insights today and lots of your learning. For those who want to know more, I'm going to include a link to Paul's website, the Center for Coaching and Organizations. And if you like reading, there is an abundance of white papers, blogs, articles, and even some recent podcasts that are um, freely available off Paul's website. Paul's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blog, retrieve a whole range of resources that we talk about in each episode. And if you are visual, a bit like myself, there are a range of videos sitting in our YouTube channel that you might find helpful. If you're enjoying all this, a review on iTunes or Spotify would be much appreciated. See you next time.